Take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 5. I think this is perhaps probably my favorite chapter in the book of Revelation. Certainly the one we've read the most over my tenure here. Now this is God's Word. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power, wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's ask God's blessing upon his word. Lord, all of your word is marvelous. There are some passages that strain us to see how marvelous they are, like the Uh, genealogies. (laughs) And then there are some passages that we come to and it is very easily, um, abundantly clear, easily seen. The passage is so much bigger than we are. And so we ask humbly, O God, that you would speak not just in the reading of your word, but also in its preaching. Reshape our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Christmas is obviously a marvelous time. Time with presents. 
time with family, a time with food. If we kind of asked each other, I guess, went through here, maybe the kids in the church, what their favorite things about Christmas would be, you'd probably get those would be the three biggies, right? Time together with family, food, presents, maybe not in that order, but those would be the big three. Maybe you might get, I like the music, or I like the lights and the tree. I might, you know, get those things. And we could, I'd say, probably together come up with a fairly robust list of pretty much everything that kind of marks out Christmas for us. Every year, though, and I think this is probably, I guess, true for many of us, but if you pay attention to the news over the Christmas holiday, and for some of you, honestly, that's the thing you enjoy about Christmas, you don't have to pay attention to the news. You can kind of turn that off and just enjoy sports and enjoy uh, family and enjoy the few you know, things that we have going on or whatever. But if you, you pay attention to the news, you, you understand that Christmas outside of America has a very different feel for Christians. A very, very different feel for Christians. Because for so many of them, it's the season where they die. I don't know if you paid attention this last week. Multiple churches burned all around the world. Christians beheaded all over northern Africa. Why? Well, because it's Christmas. And for those that hate God, those that are His enemies, those that hate the Christians, they understand a season devoted to worshiping Jesus is odious to them. They hate it. And hate the people that participate in it. So there's always this tension, you know, as we gather together on Christmas Eve for lessons and carols and we sing and read and are safe to think of the tension on the other side of the world, maybe. That as they get together to read and sing and to pray, for some of them it'll be the last time they get a chance to do that. And I don't mean some of them individually, I mean some of them corporately as churches. That's the end of the line where the Lord calls them all home together. Many of us, because we are so privileged, not all of us, but many of us, because we are so privileged, because, and I don't mean this in the sense of, you know, political correctness or any of that, I mean in the sense of our lives are so abundantly and richly blessed by our God. For many of us, the the biggest struggle we have to worry about every week is how badly our feelings are going to get hurt. And I'm not saying feelings aren't important, but it's a little different than starving to death or watching your kids be killed in front of you. It's a little different scenario. But because our lives are filled, many of us, with such pleasantries, passages like chapter 5, I think, sometimes lose a little bit of the punch that was intended lose a little bit of the sting that was intended, lose a little bit of the angst, the the tension, the struggle that was intended. You see, chapters 4 and 5 are a, a complete unit. They introduce what's going to follow in the next several chapters as the various seals are open and things happen, but they introduce it in the form of a vision. John is in a vision taken to a place in his spirit, in his soul, where he is able to engage this reality that God is introducing him to. 
And he gives, God gives him this portrait, this symbol of the truths that God is going to teach him. And again, remember, this is symbolic. We do not want to interpret this literally. In fact, Jesus even in chapter 5 tells us not to. With the saints holding bowls of incense, which by the way are what? The bowls of incense are the prayers of the saints. It's a symbolic reference from the very beginning in Revelation chapter 1 even through to today. Chapter 4 was significant, though, and as we looked at the text last week, is basically John is taken into this place where he is able to see the very presence of God in some fashion, the glory of God largely wrapped in the language of Ezekiel and Daniel. He's taken to a place where he has kind of surrounding him the throne of God. He never describes God. We can't imagine him. We don't know what he looks like. All we know is that he's clothed in light in the aurora borealis or something of this sort. It's, it's beautiful. It's lovely. It's marvelous. It's so bright. You cannot penetrate it with your eyes. And around the outside of the throne, you have the elders representing the people of God from the Old and New Testament. These elders could have been angels, they could have been humans, we're not entirely sure, the text doesn't tell us, it doesn't matter. And around them you have uh, the actual angels themselves, these creatures composed of eyes and wings and fire and are wholly terrible. And I mean that not in the sense of like evil terrible, I mean that in the sense of overwhelming terror. One of the things we talked about this week is just marveling at Mary's response (laughs) What an amazing response that young lady gave when seeing the angel and not freaking out. Her response is better than just about anybody's in the scriptures. And then around these angels, you have kind of uh, an audience of sorts. And it's marvelous. It's wonderful. It's filled with the glory of God. And the reason why I started where I did about saying we oftentimes, many of us, not all of us, many of us do not feel the tension of the difficulties of this world, the real and genuine and rich heartaches of this world, it it robs the first paragraph of meaning. Because John is then introduced to the problem. Chapter 4 set the the stage. It gave us the setting. Chapter 5 introduces the problem. And then I saw in the right right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll that was written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. So now here's the issue is uh, looking in the direction of God, again, not able to see what he's able to see, clothed in glory. He sees a book, a scroll, a codex, something, some sort of writing coming out with the hand of God. And a couple of features that we note is that it's both sealed so that you can't open it without proper authority, and it's full. Thus the, the note there that it's written from within and without. It's, it's double-sided, it's full. The modern-day kind of version, if you were going to put this into 2020, uh, it would be a thumb drive, absolutely crammed full, but password-protected. 
If we were to go back 100 years, it would be like one of those gigantic unabridged dictionary types things that have the lock on them that then would be made smaller for little girls, you know, journals and diaries all over the United States. And the issue here is that John and everybody else in the room knows what that book is and knows that it needs to be opened. Everyone there knows that it's the most desirable thing. It's the thing we're looking forward to. We're ready for that to open. For those of you that grew up in families where you would get lots of little presents, but like one big present, it was the feeling you had when you knew everything little had been opened and the only thing left was the real present. The big one. The one that uh, was going to be exciting. And everyone in the room is aware that this is the present. This is the thing that needs to be cracked open so that we can all engage what's inside. But slightly different than a present, though, is whatever's on the inside of this one, we don't know yet. The reader doesn't know. John does. Those in the room does. uh, do. We don't yet realize that what is required to open this is not simply like opening a present. It's not, can you pop, you know, a little scotch tape, can you tear open the wrapping paper? Maybe you need a knife to, you know, cut through the ribbon. Uh, But all it takes is enough effort and you're good to go. This one, on the other hand, is sealed. It's sealed with seven seals, seals that would again been markers of authority. And even to the point where in verse 2, a strong angel. I don't know how a strong angel is different than a regular angel, because they all seem pretty strong to me. But point being, this one's bigger and scarier. Asks a single question. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals. Who, who's, who's the one who has the authority? Who is the one who has the character? Who is the one who has the power? Who is the one who is worthy to open the book that everybody in heaven wants to see opened? In verse 3, well, no one. You get the impression they look around and you've got the angels, you've got, I mean, they're pretty amazing. You've got the angels, you have the elders, you, no one, no one, no one can take it from the Father and no one can open it. And then verse four, and I think, like I said, I've read this chapter probably more than all the other chapters in Revelation combined. And just again, prepping for this sermon, I don't know how I caught this. Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. How many times I've read that in front? Where is he when he's crying? He's standing in the very glory of God. He's standing before the throne of God. He's standing with the angels around him, singing and praising God. He's standing with the elders there, with the living creatures. He's standing in the most glorious interaction with the glory of God anybody has ever had at this point. Maybe excepting one or two, potentially, but I don't think so. And he begins to weep. 
And I, I, just again, pause for that for a moment. To, to consider how serious the issue is that he's crying in the very presence of God and not tears of joy. Again, if we were to ask the children of the church, we could go through, what is heaven? And people will say, well, it's where God lives. Well, true, not wrong. Well, what will heaven be like? Well, there will be no more tears. Interesting, that's not the case for John. Being in the very presence of God, he is filled with weeping because no one is ready to open the book. You go, wow, that's... That's a pretty impressive book. If you, being in God's presence, are not comforted by God's presence enough to overwhelm, overpower, and surpass the sadness of opening the book. Which you notice I actually haven't explained to you what the book is. (laughs) It's actually something we find out over the next several chapters, and it's a book that is both wonderful and terrible at the exact same time. It's a book that is filled with, uh, for some good news and bad news, in the most wonderful and awful of fashions. It's a book, it's not the book of life. It's the book that explains and contains God's plan of judgment and redemption for the world. It's the book, the scroll, that includes and contains the reality of God's relationship with His people and God's relationship with His enemies. It's for this reason that John's weeping as he stands before the throne room of God because he understands that apart from this book being opened and being fulfilled, he's on the wrong side of the equation. He understands that judgment will be coming for him, but he doesn't know what it even looks like. The plan of salvation, the plan of judgment, the plan of finality with humans is not yet revealed. It's interesting, that's where we have verse 5 introduced, and one of the elders said, hey, weep no more, be, be at peace, be okay. Why? Because, and here he goes to the Old Testament, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who is mighty, who is powerful, who is filled with strength, the root of David, the one who has come from the lineage of David. We already read that in Isaiah just a little bit ago. This one has indeed already conquered, and because he has conquered, he is ready to take the scroll and to open the seven seals. This one, this lamb, this Jesus is ready. And again, I I wonder... Going back to where we started, I wonder how much, again, the, the just sweet mercies, the rich abundance, the affluence of our lives, we miss some of the tension that John has in the passage.
I'm raised in the church my whole life. I've been in Sunday school. Well, I started nursery, I guess, when I was about six months old. Praise God for that. Many of you, that's your story as well and what great rich blessings we have. But for us, again, we've never had to wrestle through that reality of who is the one who is worthy to provide salvation? Who is the one who is worthy to satisfy God? Because praise God again and praise God for our children that will grow up in Sunday school that will always know the answer is Jesus but haven't maybe had to wrestle through that tension. I think about it at Christmas time, particularly thinking about it for the persecuted church and to think about how many of them weep, not just for the reality of their Savior to be made known, but for the one who will destroy their enemies. The one who who will provide Vengeance on those that cut off the heads of their children and their spouses. The ones who locked the doors to the church and burned it down with the Christians inside longed for destruction of the enemies of God. I'll be honest, that's a reality I don't think I long for very frequently. To be honest, those are not the psalms that I recite in my head most frequently. I don't turn to Psalm 137. Blessed is the one who dashes your little children's heads out on the rocks. That's how it ends. God taking victory against his enemies. I don't go there very often emotionally. And you know why? Because I have such a small view of sin. And such a small and low view of the people of God that it doesn't rattle me to the core to think of enemies of God seeking to destroy my brothers and sisters. Because I don't see it happening to you. The people of God right in front of my face, I see you doing well. I have a tough time wrapping my mind around that it's our family overseas that suffer. Weep no more. The mighty Savior has come. And you think, all right, this is great. Here we have God the Father on His throne getting ready to give the plan of redemption and the plan of judgment, uh, the entirety of the kind of resolution of mankind, getting ready to give it to the lion, to the root of David, to this mighty one, the one who has conquered already, the one who is worthy already. You would be expecting something marvelous. And between the throne and its radiance where we can't even see it, it's so glorious, and the four living creatures which are bizarre in the fullest of fashion, and the elders all around, here you get introduced. (laughs) A lamb standing. The English here tries to capture it, but it doesn't do it fully justice. It's a lamb saying, not as though it had been slain. It was a slain lamb that still lived. 
It was a lamb that had already been killed, but was not dead. It's trying to capture in the English and be faithful to the Greek that it's a lamb who has been murdered, but not stayed dead. There's a famous Van Eck painting that is lovely. I remember actually the first time I saw it in, uh, I guess it was uh, 10th grade history. Uh, where there's a great painting where he's, the lamb is standing on the altar with the people around him, the elders bowing down, and it's got a snick right there in its little you know, throat, and the blood is just gushing out into a chalice next to it. And you're like, well, you, you tried to capture it, but that's not entirely right. The better illustration is that which you get to see after the resurrection when Jesus says, here, feel the holes in my hands. Feel the hole in my side. You know I was murdered. I was dead, but I didn't stay that way. And it's intriguing that when it comes time to have the introduction of the hero of the story, the one who's going to be able to open the plan of redemption, the plan of judgment, it is the one who is by definition the resurrected king. I love that. That's actually what it's getting at with the lamb standing. Obviously, it's referencing the Passover lamb. He didn't deserve to be murdered. He didn't deserve it because he was completely innocent. It's certainly referencing Isaiah with the suffering servant, the one who was killed for us. By his stripes, we are healed. But even more so, capturing in this unbelievably graphic fashion that the one who has conquered, who is victorious, is the resurrected Savior. A lamb standing as though it had been slain, and then here with seven horns, with seven eyes, which, I mean, most of us would go, that's pretty heinous of a lamb. We don't really want that. Again, do not take this literally. Seven being the number of completion in the book of Revelation. He he is the completeness of the horns, which horns represent uh, power and strength. And eyes, we've seen already in the book, represent knowledge and understanding. Who is this lamb? He is the one who has the fullness of power. He has the fullness of knowledge. And also he has the fullness of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. He is the anointed one. And remember in the old language, the way that was called was the Messiah. What you have with this kind of bizarre portrait of a lamb with horns and eyes and spirits and all those is really just a lovely portrait of the Lord Jesus. Filled with power and with glory. And we're going to find out in just a moment what he does with this, but it does probably beg a good kind of opportunity for us to step aside for a moment and just to, to ponder our own situation. We remember that Jesus is our mediator, that Jesus is the one who takes us into the presence of God. We know this. We also know that we go into God's presence through our union with Christ as we are joined with Christ Jesus. That is how we are taken into his presence. And it is intriguing how the pathway to heaven for Jesus himself was the path of suffering. 
How is it that Jesus is introduced as the victor here? How is it as Jesus is the one introduced who has the power of judgment, who has the power of salvation? Oh yeah, by the way, he was the one who was slain. Again, Isaiah, he's the suffering servant who's then victorious. And I find it immensely intriguing that we as Christians so often want to define the path that we have to walk as one that is better than our Savior did. Jesus walked the path of suffering all the way until he passed through the door of victory. And I want to walk the path of victory all the way until I pass through the door of greater victory. It's almost like I'm too good for Jesus. I mean, I can't take that. I can't follow in his footsteps, though he's called me to. Though I am called to follow the path through the door that he has opened, I don't want to suffer. And why should I? You see why I used that reference earlier, even from the Roman centurion in Luke 7. Here you have a man who's looked so humble. His response, is, in essence, is, Jesus, do with me what you wish. I'm your servant. I don't get to have a say over my life. I don't get to have control over my life because you're my master. Do with me what you wish. And it's intriguing how comfortable I am saying those words when it's only blessing that I think is coming. Jesus, do with me what you wish if you wish to give me good things. But it's not Jesus, do with me what you wish when I know the path that I'm called to follow you down is one of heartache and hurt. It's interesting how Jesus' ministry is even articulated as being perfected, being completed through suffering, and yet I won't do that. And I'm a fallen creature that's not perfect, and he already was. Verse 7, and when he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne, then everything changes. The four living creatures, the 24 elders, fall down before the Lamb. Uh, They have a harp, which again would have been obviously for strumming, but probably more rhythmically than anything. So they can begin to chant and to praise the Lord. And it's interesting, they have the harp for making music in one hand. They have the incense, the golden bowl of incense, which by the way is the prayers of the saints in the other. And you get the idea that here they bring before the throne of God all of the glories of the church in her praise. Worthy are you to take the scroll, Lamb of God. Worthy are you to open its seals. And he's going to. And when he does, what will follow? Judgment will follow. Most of the scrolls that we open, are not, they're not happy stories yet. They're the destruction of the world. They're the destruction of the enemies of God. Why are you worthy? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. 
you accomplished this thing and you did it from all kinds of people, every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Again, I, I don't think that's probably intended to be literal. I, intend, I think it's intended to be uh, a, a metaphor for you saved people from everywhere. You didn't just go for the Jews. You went for the Jews and the Gentiles all over the world. And look at what you have already done. What was accomplished in the resurrection is that you have already made them a kingdom. Again, remember, this is how John has introduced this book, is that the kingdom, the reign of Christ, we're even going to go so far as to say the millennium, has already started. Started well before even chapter 1 had begun. And here it's continued. You have already made these people to be kings and made them to be priests. They will reign on the earth. They already do in some fashion. You think about it, that's what Adam was made to do. I mean, what does it sound like when God tells him to be fruitful and multiply and go take dominion over the earth? That's the task of a king. There's an under king, a king under God, but a king nonetheless. In fact, that task never changed for us. We are intended to be those holy kings and queens that do reign on the earth under God. But here, even further intensified, kingdom and priests transformed and changed. And again, to marvel at the salvation that God has already provided that kingdom already begun. And this is, again, I, I think sometimes where the great affluence with which God has blessed us sometimes presents a challenge for us. It's so hard for us to think of ourselves being in God's kingdom because we already live in such a marvelous one here. And I, I don't mean that to comment on the politics of our current day. I mean that to comment on the fact that this is the best nation that has ever existed with the greatest affluence that has ever existed, with the most just laws, honestly, that have ever existed, as badly as they are written. And for that, it's, it's easy for us to see us living here and to be caught up with the things and the stuff and the realities of our day-to-day life and forget that, no, we are called to exist at a higher kingdom a higher country, a higher reality that we are already, even now, kings and queens and priests in the nation of God. And I think that misunderstanding is part of why verses 11 through 14 sometimes can be a little bit hard for us. Because we do not understand the reality of our present situation, all of the praise that follows can sometimes ring a bit hollow to us. Then I looked and I heard around the throne, uh, uh, again, Scripture understates in the most beautiful of fashion. This is one of those great verses. Then I looked and heard around the throne the living creatures, the uh, elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Just going to go out on a limb and say, that's not the type of noise that you ever forget. One angel is enough that it kind of leaves an impression on you when you meet him. You get the impression that one angel is enough that even when he sings, it's enough. But here, there's an uncountable number of angels that kind of spontaneously come into view and begin to praise the Lord. 
praising Christ Jesus in his death, praising Christ Jesus in his resurrection, and how he is worthy to do all that needs to be done. And then 13, you have all of the creatures of heaven and earth joining in. And 14, the elders confirming it all, saying amen. And it would have been deafening. And the challenge that I would present for us is simply this. I suspect that all of us in here professing to be Christians, knowing the Lord, loving him, desire for our lives to mimic 11 through 14. That's one of those assumptions that you can kind of bring to the table. I assume that every Christian in the room wants to praise God more. And more often than not, we say, well, uh, the reason why I don't praise God more is because my heart's so weak, my flesh is so weak, me, 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 me. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's probably true. But coupled with it, I suspect that so much of it is also because we've stopped looking at Jesus quite as much as we need. And we've looked at this world around us. We've let our minds be captivated by the blessings of this place. And have lost a little bit of that, again, wonder at who Jesus is. May it be that as we kind of go into the new year and honestly go into a year that's going to be extremely complicated for the life of this church. I mean, Lord willing, having a groundbreaking in just three weeks. Very complicated year for the life of this church. May it be that we work together to cultivate an attitude of greater praise, but specifically to do it by wondering, contemplating, meditating on the resurrected Savior who is worthy to be praised. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that you, triune God, have the plan of redemption and it is accomplished by the Lord Christ. Forgive us for our weak, weak faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.